My name is Mason Canridge. I am a historian of some minor fame, probably best known for my work on The Ignition, the term given to the destruction of the great city of Korriban. A little over a year ago, a man who claimed to be a survivor of Korriban's last days tracked me down. His name was Ciro Orente, and he had worked as a diplomat and spy in the city, and he told me bluntly that my book was wrong, and he was eager to tell me what really happened. Where we left events, Mr. Orente had been stopped from confronting the Brotherhood by his acquaintance Lotharin Medea, a border guard who had previously abandoned Orente to almost certain death at the hands of the Brotherhood. The usual caveat applies that the vast majority of this is simply what Orente has told me, mixed with articles from newspapers, diary extracts, and more to give a little context and more information. Medea led me to an empty room in the house where we could talk. I had put my revolver away, but I was acutely aware of its position and was ready to use it if necessary. I hadn't expected to see Medea again, and I dare say she had thought the same of me, surely doubting I would ever emerge from the Brotherhood's torture chamber. I did feel angry at Medea, but also, well, what did I expect her to do? Fight the Brotherhood? Of course the possibility existed she had led me across the border and into a trap. Before I had a chance to ask her any questions, she said she was relieved her plan had worked and I was safe. Apparently, after leaving Lady Joquan's apartment, she had let Wilson Trek know what was going on, and Trek and his friends had begun to take exception to the Brotherhood's incursions. When I'd asked who exactly Wilson Trek was, she quickly changed the subject. Since we had parted ways, Medea had not given up on finding out what had happened to Murray or why, and in a single word she told me. Smuggling. Now, smuggling in Korriban was essentially one of the strongest pillars of the city's economy, and it was hardly surprising that Murray, a man with many connections across the city and the wider world, would seek to make a little bit of money smuggling. Honestly, Medea couldn't say whether or not Murray had been killed because of his involvement in smuggling, but people were killed for less in Korriban. What was actually surprising was that Murray was already a wealthy man. Despite being from a peasant family, he was richer than much of the nobility myself included. Why would he get involved in such illegal and dangerous activities? And so we come to the entry of the second of the so-called three emperors. I say so-called because only one of them actually claimed the title of emperor. That man was Varance II, Emperor of Dravia, certainly the most complicated character of the three emperors. He was a man of great ambition, with huge dreams for his people and his empire, but lacked the intelligence to see it through. He was a man at odds with the spirit of the age. He looked back to grand empires, chivalric orders, and absolutism, things that were already out of date. The great agrarian wealth of Dravia had already been eclipsed by Barristone's modern economy driven by trade and industry, and that was only going to get worse. Of the three emperors, he was the most warlike, even compared to King Sellers, who had been a soldier for most of his life, but also the one most unprepared for war. He ruled a multinational empire that required a huge army just to keep the peace. On paper, Dravia had immense resources, but few of these could be spared for war. History had been unkind to Varance, but he had his good points. He was a far kinder ruler to the subject peoples of his empire than any of his predecessors. He cared about the welfare of his people and did much to alleviate suffering in the poorer areas of it. He engaged with reformers and those who pushed for liberal ideas, happy to debate them if he ultimately ignored them. Varance's father, Astorin, had liberals imprisoned and tortured. He burned down newspaper offices that wrote things he did not agree with, and happily exported crops while his own people starved, so this comparatively mild son was popular with his people. 
article on the arrival of Varens II, Emperor of Dravia, published in the Corbin Star by Otten Crane, April 17, 1886. The arrival of Varens II was expected to be a grand affair. His Imperial Majesty's agents had been preparing for weeks, and a fortune was being spent on the celebration. The Draven presence in Korriban has always been a move to bolster the prestige of their empire, and with the world's attention focused on the city, the Draven Emperor could not pass up the opportunity. Large crowds had turned out to see the arrival. To be honest, the people had been a little disappointed by the performance of King General Celus Castor, who had little time for pomp and ceremony. These shows of wealth and power are not just a sop to the vanity of rulers, although it certainly is that as well, but show the power of their country. People were not just unimpressed with a king general, they were unimpressed with Moriaka. Varens II has been emperor for seven years, and a leading figure in government for a long time before that, and has a reputation for luxury and extravagance in all things. His Imperial Majesty also has a great yearning to be seen as a skillful military leader and has personally led soldiers into battle on multiple occasions, admittedly with advice of professional soldiers guiding him. It would be fair to say, though, that the Emperor has never really tested his skills in real battle. The Golden Gate was literally covered in gold leaf, and flowers were strewn across the road the Emperor would be taking. Draven soldiers lined the streets, both part of the spectacle and to keep the people from getting too close. Crowd control could be a huge problem at such events and, as it had been made clear that gifts would be given to those in attendance, security was high. Two years ago, His Imperial Majesty was the target of an assassin, a liberal student who thought the Emperor's views too reactionary. The Emperor was wounded but survived, the student gunned down by soldiers, a fortunate outcome for the student, as he would not have wanted to be taken alive. The Emperor, in a masterstroke of image management, brushed off the attack and joked about it to journalists while receiving treatment. The procession started at precisely 12pm, with two columns of cavalry at the Imperial Guard trotting through the gate and looked every bit the modern fighting force, dashing uniforms, brand new rifles and incredibly disciplined. They were followed by the rather bizarre sight of the Brotherhood, some marching, some on horses, wearing plate armour, armed with lances and large axes. A rumour reached me that most of the armour and equipment doesn't belong to the Brotherhood, but was supplied by Imperial armories, with the Brotherhood's equipment deemed not up to public display. Next came the Tigers, being the traditional symbol of Draven royalty, four Tigers from the private Imperial Zoo were paraded down the street. Assurances were made that the Tigers were perfectly safe, each was held on a sturdy leash by two handlers and had taken part in parades before, but it did add a certain air of danger to the proceedings. Then came a parade of two dozen artillery pieces ranging from small field cannons to the genuinely awesome heavy cannons used so effectively against the mountain rebels last year. The Emperor takes particular pride in his artillery and is always searching for bigger and more impressive pieces, 
Even weapons he's fully aware are impractical, but could serve useful promotional purposes. Often, when the Emperor wears military uniform, it is of an artillery general, a rank that, technically, he does not hold. Then came the curious dioramas, recreating scenes from Draven history. The Battle of Kesselran, the death of King Ulface, Dianed writing The Last Family. The detail was extraordinary and they were genuine works of art. Naturally, they ended with the crowning of Karelan, Varence's ancestor and first emperor, the man credited with ending almost 60 years of anarchy. The audience were getting a little bored by these history lessons, thus presumably many of the residents of Korriban, even the Draven territories, were not familiar with the history, but the next part certainly got their attention. Money. Women in traditional Draven clothes, that is, not the way anyone has dressed for at least three centuries, if they ever did, with baskets filled with silver coins that had been minted for the occasion, they threw them out to the crowds as they passed. While I didn't manage to grab one myself, I managed to convince a young boy to show me his coin. It's a big silver coin, one side showing Varens in profile, with a date of his visit to the city, and on the reverse a depiction of the city with the distinctive buildings of the city clear to see. It certainly sent the signal that Varens had no intention of giving up his part of Korriban. Music had been playing by several different groups of musicians throughout the parade, but as Varence's carriage could finally be seen, there was a great marching band ahead of him. They played the Draven National Anthem, United by the Gods, as well as some other patriotic Draven songs that I was not familiar with. And then, finally, His Imperial Majesty's carriage arrived, drawn by four magnificent horses, and surrounded by a dozen cavalrymen in radiant uniforms. The carriage was green and black, the Draven imperial colours as well as parts covered in gold leaf. The carriage contained only two people, the Emperor, dressed in an elegant if old-fashioned suit, and his wife, the Empress Arya, looking beautiful as ever. Varen held up one hand to the crowds, the closest he could come to waving and had a look of stern but caring monarch. There followed a few more cavalry squadrons, mostly irregular cavalry, just to show the range and diversity of the Draven Empire. His Imperial Majesty and his wife proceeded to the Sunset Palace, the most fitting building in his part of the city. It is the source of indignation of everyone concerned that the Barists seized the grandest buildings in their initial rush, the Palace of Eternal Gold, Bezian Hall, and so on. Despite its already impressive state, a team of workers had been making the building even more spectacular for such an important guest. I stayed at the party and did my job for the rest of the evening. Medea had vanished, and I didn't see any of the knights either. The evening was surprisingly productive, and I spoke to a very interesting young man who worked in the Marican military headquarters, who was not at all pleased that he had been passed over for promotion. Again? Such small complaints are the start of many profitable arrangements in espionage, and given a little encouragement and money, he could have turned into a valuable asset. It was important to me that I still did my job while all this madness was going on. This was the most important time in my career. I was in the middle of an event that would make countries, 
redraw borders and create kings. I doubted I would have such an opportunity again in my lifetime. And as horrible as it is to say, Murray's death was good for my career. Perhaps it was feelings of guilt around this that I'd taken such an interest in his death and working out what had happened. I'd arranged to meet Medea the next morning, and we would seek out the people Moray had been working with. Part of me wanted to just abandon the whole thing after all. If Moray had gotten involved with criminals to try and make some money, that was his own fault, surely? I kept saying that to myself as I waited for Medea, knowing that I was going to see this through. I sat sipping coffee while I waited and tried not to think about all the things that could go wrong in confronting potential murderers. Again, I had brought my revolver, and while I hoped not to need it, I had practiced drawing it from my coat in my apartment. I'd spent several years in the Cassarian Navy, and while not exceptional, I had acquitted myself well. Medea found me, and saying very little, she asked me to follow her. She didn't tell me our destination, but after a few minutes it was easy to work out where we were going. We were going underground. It was an odd thing that the rulers of the Aurelian Empire had taken to the idea of building an underground railway system. After all, their infamous walls were there to control the population. But like a few other major cities, they'd been taken by the idea and started building a vast network of tunnels. Then the Aurelian Empire had collapsed, and none of the countries who had taken control of the city were willing to pay the millions it would take, especially if they then lost control of Korriban and the Congress. That was actually a common problem across the city. Few new projects were started, and maintaining existing infrastructure did not fare much better. So Korriban was left with a half-complete network of tunnels that could, in theory, completely bypass the border walls. The authorities had not been blind to this problem, and had made a genuine effort to prevent this, tellingly putting their own soldiers in charge of security rather than the border guard. Still, it seemed like someone had found a way around this. At the end of Nybron Street, we reached what looked like a large construction site, but was meant to be one of the major terminals. Medea found a small gap in the fence, and we slipped through. We walked down the steps into the actual tunnel and stopped. An agitated, barrist soldier was pacing back and forth. When he saw us, I couldn't tell if he was relieved or even more terrified. The soldier and Medea had a quiet conversation, which at some points seemed to grow quite heated, but eventually Medea gestured for me to approach. The soldier looked rather contemptuously at me, but turned round and unlocked a small door in the wall that blocked the tunnel. I peered inside and was surprised to see it was quite well lit. Lamps ran across the walls and were scattered on the floor. This smuggling seemed to be a lot more organized than I perhaps gave them credit for. Medea led the way while I carefully tried to memorize the path. It wasn't actually a complicated route, but I would have hated to get lost down there. After a few minutes, I heard talking and movement, and Medea put a hand out to stop me. She slowly moved forward and then rounded the corner. I couldn't hear her very well. It echoed a lot in the tunnels, and she had switched to speaking Tarsi, a common language in the city, but not one of my best. It sounded like she was trying to get a cut of their shady business, which was the plan she had already relayed to me, when she stopped mid-sentence, and then very clearly she said, These are from Jakoi. Things happened too fast for me to properly take this in at the time, but I shall explain the significance. Jakoi is a city in the eastern part of what had been the Aurelian Empire, a city deep in infected territory. There were a raft of very serious laws forbidding anyone to even enter infected territory, and another even more serious raft of laws about taking things out. These people weren't smuggling barrist gin through to the draven part of the city. They were smuggling items from the infected area. 
As a business, it made sense. The area was full of abandoned wealth just sitting there. There were two reasons for the ban. First, most likely sending people into the area would only add more to the numbers of the infected. And second, what if they brought the infection back? There'd been a couple of incidents of famous works of art miraculously being found in different cities other than where everyone thought they were, and the investigation put an end to that sort of thing. Obviously, such high-profile items were too blatant. Rumors had persisted that the trade in more anonymous goods continued. The knowledge brought a further realization. Such people may not have murdered Murray, but they were serious criminals, certainly capable of killing someone. I considered what to do for a second, before actions overtook me. There was a shout. Something fell over, and there was a shot. I drew my gun and stepped round the corner. Aside from a deer, there were four men. At least two of them carried their own guns. A table had been overturned, and gold coins covered the floor. Medea was pressed against the wall, her gun clutched in one hand, the other pressed against her side, where there was an awful lot of blood. Without fully thinking about the consequences, I fired. I should have thought about what was the best way for me and Medea to get out of there without any more shots being fired, and instead I lashed out. I missed, and naturally enough they returned fire, and we were in a brief but terrifying gun battle. I fired and tried to make it towards Medea, but it wasn't possible, and I found myself retreating into another tunnel, one with far fewer lamps. I stood still in the shadows. I had two bullets left and fought the urge to reload, worried the noise would give away my position. My initial rush of bravado had quickly melted away. I could hear movement, and then Medea's voice, then another shot. Unable to stop myself, I fired twice more, almost blindly shooting. I quickly tried to reload, walking further into the darkness. They fired back, worryingly close. Then silence. I thought about what to do, when there was a sudden commotion, someone running towards me. I raised the revolver and waited, not wanting to give away my position. It didn't matter. Someone barreled into me, and we both fell to the ground. My attacker clawed at my legs as I struggled to crawl away. Finally getting a chance, I turned and fired my revolver. I kept firing until I ran out of bullets, but my attacker was dead. The relief was temporary, as I was surrounded. Someone hit me. The Outbreak. Statement of Dr. Arist Warad, former Minister for Public Health of the Iralan Empire. The actual first case is a loss to history. Precisely where the infection started, we will probably never know. But certainly the start was somewhere in the Valera province. Of course, physicians, magistrates, and so on didn't know what they were looking for, and any number of violent attacks that were put down to more conventional causes could have been attacks by the infected. On the 4th of May, 18, a local militia commander, Uruk Etun, received an urgent call to deal with the deranged population in a nearby village. Etun and his militiamen arrived to find the village deserted, but with the signs of vicious struggle and, to their horror, cannibalism. Presumably, the infected had set off to the countryside, looking for more prey. Over the next month, similar reports of deserted villages and mad attackers came in from all over the region. Atun, a career soldier of many years and respected as a capable and reasonable man, was deeply shocked by the display and took to religious pronouncements of the end of the world. As these reports made it to senior officials who were more distant and relying on third or fourth-hand accounts, they were dismissed as stories of overacting provincials, people who believed in monsters and demons. 
It was only when the situation had grown serious enough for tax collection to be affected that the government decided on a response. 1,000 soldiers were dispatched to deal with what was assumed to be a problem of bandits. Admittedly, rather more violent and perplexing bandits than usual, but nothing more serious. It is these survivors of this doomed force that gave us our first insight into the infected. They were described as slow, dull-witted, shambling creatures. Some struggled to even stay upright on two feet and crawl towards their targets. They encountered people in various states of decay, some looking like normal people, others were distorted horrors, covered in wounds and dry blood, some missing limbs but not even seeming aware of it. The soldiers were confused by these odd creatures, at first just coming across isolated individuals or small groups, but once they attacked the soldiers had no problem in returning the favour. But they were surprisingly hard to kill. It's a myth that only one shot to the head can kill an infected. A serious wound anywhere can kill them, but it can take a long time. When they shot the infected, they didn't stop. When they slashed at them with their swords, they didn't stop. When groups of soldiers savagely beat them with clubs, they kept trying to get at their attackers. Eventually, though, they did die. The handful of soldiers who had been bitten saw their medics and thought no more about it. The soldiers were disturbed, shaken, maybe even scared, but when dealing with such small numbers, they would win. They even became quite adept at dealing with them. I studied these reports. I had been one of the skeptics, more worried about the SIAX epidemic or organizing the next year's vaccination program. But it did come to my attention when it was realized that these weren't violent criminals or madmen. They were people suffering an infection. What the soldiers didn't realize was that every infected person in the region was heading towards them, surging towards the largest concentration of the living and one night from all directions, they fell upon their camp. The survivors spoke of pandemonium. Soldiers woke from their sleep and saw dozens of the infected roaming between their tents. Their comrades fled or fought, depending on what seemed most likely to help them survive, but any discipline or even thinking of someone else was abandoned. After that terrible night, the truth was out and panic set in. The story was reported all over the world, and there were many skeptics at first, but soon it became impossible to deny. The Orellan government raised an army, thinking to crush these monsters, but few survived. Confidence in the government collapsed, and when Prince Sadesh, the Emperor's fourth son, died fighting the infected, something snapped in the Imperial subjects. Most cities erupted into rioting or strikes, soldiers en masse refused to follow orders, regional generals declared rebellion against the Emperor. By this point, foreigners had arrived. At first it was advisors, mainly Barris, but more came. Then their money, then their weapons, and eventually they brought their armies, and very quickly the old Aurelian Emperor was sidelined, and more powerful foreign rulers decided what happened in the Empire. For the sake of the actual Imperial subjects, this was probably for the best. Our government had learned nothing from the defeat and continually sent more soldiers off to be slaughtered or become infected themselves. The foreign powers did the only sensible thing, to try and contain the existing infection, which eventually they managed. This good news was not enough to save the Aurelian government. In the months of the crisis, around a third of the Empire had split away or was in open revolt. Many of the remaining provinces had nominal loyalty at best. 
What remained of the Imperial Army was in and around Korriban, but they were as discontented as the civilians, and when a massive riot broke out in the capital, they refused to put it down, with some soldiers actually joining the rioters. Aurelian Imperial politics had been a rough business at the best of times, but a brutal and bloody war was waged in the halls of power. The Emperor's eldest son and heir was murdered, and his father's retaliation was extraordinary. The resulting wave of violence wiped out most of the government. I simply hid. I was a doctor who joined the government to help stop the Syax epidemic. This was too much for me. The Barris, who in recent years had gained more and more influence over the Empire, stepped in. They snatched up one of the few remaining members of the Imperial family. A boy aged eight. Named him Emperor, and seized half of Korriban. Barris Audacity almost won them an Empire, or what remained of it but instead they were half-hearted, allowing their rivals to make similar moves. The empire collapsed, splitting into two dozen nations, the fate of which the Congress of Korriban is meant to resolve. As a Baalrist citizen, it can be hard to hear my country described in such a manner, but as an historian, I have to concede it is largely accurate. This was the time when the Baalrist government sought to control the world, more through financial might, espionage, and clever politicking than outright military force. That boy emperor was Osiakin, and as amazing as it may seem, his fate is unclear even to this day. No one believes he is alive, but there is some debate as to what happened to him. He was only seen in public for another year, after which he simply disappeared, and for another four years, documents are signed in his name and proclamations made, but no sign of him. Many believe the Baristone had him killed, but I disagree, not out of loyalty to my home country, as I am very aware how ruthless they could be, but because it made no sense. At the time of his disappearance, Osiakin wasn't even ten, and he was under the complete control of the Baarist forces in the city. Baarist policy was very much to create puppet rulers, and he would have made an excellent puppet. I believe he was killed by someone who thought killing the boy emperor would have meant the Baarist position became untenable, and if that's what you're thinking, you have to put the blame on Dravia or Moriaka, the people who had the most to gain. Health Minister Wared gives an amazing insight to the Aurelian government as it tried to deal with the crisis. The government's response to the infection still attracts a lot of criticism to this day, but it is important to remember no one had ever heard of the infected, and it would have been extremely odd for them to believe second-hand accounts of undead monsters. We'll leave the story there for now, dwelling on what we would have done in such impossible times. The Reignition Theory was created and written by Richard Norton. The show's audio engineer is Jamie Stoffer. Anyone wishing to contact Jamie can send an email to jlsaudiobooking at gmail.com or find Jamie on Instagram at jls underscore audio. Mason Kainrich was played by Mike Queller. Mike is also the host of the Weird Tales podcast. Find it at theweirdtalespodcast.podbean.com. See where Orente was played by Graham Rowett. Find Graham on Twitter at GrahamNY. G-R-A-H-A-M-N-Y. Otten Crane was played by Karen Heimdall. Find Karen on Twitter at Karen Heim. Dr. Arist Wareid was played by Emily Boozer. Find Emily on Twitter at Emily of Arden.